Welcome to Real Authors in Real Time podcast, where we explore the world of writing, publishing, and book promotion. Your host, Carmen Renee Berry, co-founder of Berry Powell Press, is a New York Times best-selling author and has been on Oprah and featured in Newsweek. She helps aspiring authors create top-quality books that transform lives. Join Carmen and her guests as they share insights and experiences in publishing and learn how to bring your message to the world. And now, Carmen. Well, I am honored to have Dr. Diana Glyer here today for our podcast. She might not tell you, but she's a really big deal. Uh, she's an international expert on C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and, and their writing group called The Inklings. And she's going to tell you more about that. And uh, also, she is a professor at Azusa Pacific University, and she's working with us on a book series to help writers write better, which I'm excited to be publishing. So welcome to the podcast, Diana. Thank you so much, Carmen. It's really a joy to be with you. Many of the aspiring authors I meet think that writing a book is a solitary experience, but that is not your experience or mine. So let's talk about collaboration. How do you define collaboration in, a, in the process of writing a book? That's a great question. Thanks for leading with that. Uh, I think a lot of us are under the sort of mistaken notion that being a writer, being a creative of any type is a very solitary uh, kind of, you know, typewriter in the attic on a dark and stormy night kind of experience. And what the research shows is that that's a terrible myth. It's a horrible lie. Creativity thrives in community. It thrives as we bounce ideas back and forth with one another, as we encourage one another particularly, I think, as we challenge one another, as we ask questions and dig deep into the kinds of things that we hope to accomplish or achieve. If you, if you look at the history of innovation, or if you think about the factors that contribute to our productivity, almost all of it has a community aspect. And this is true in practically every field of endeavor that you can imagine. It's certainly true for writers, but also you could think about musicians, or you could think about innovators in technology, for example. Think about the teams of people who come together, each one with a different gift and a different perspective, and the way that each of them brings out the best in each other. And that's what I mean when I talk about collaboration. You know, I hear in my mind somebody asking, but what if somebody steals my idea? <laughs> I get that a lot, right? Uh, I'm going to I'm going to be in a group and I'm going to tell my my idea and somebody's going to take it and write their book on it. What do you say to that? What I say to that is that our idea of intellectual property really needs to be modified a little bit, I think. It's true that we want to keep track of our own unique expressions of ideas. But I think it helps us to remember that our ideas come from somewhere. The body of information that we have is like a beam of light that's refracted through the particular prism of our own voice and our own experience. But that beam of light, think about it as raw materials. Those raw materials are materials that we ourselves have gathered from various places. So 
I think about it maybe a little bit like um, maybe a cooking metaphor will help to make it clearer. Uh, we may all go to the grocery store. Carmen, you and I may go to the local Vons and we may put some of the same ingredients in our basket. But when we get home, the dish that you prepare, the dish that I prepare, will be dramatically different because of our unique perspective. And if we're doing it right, especially when you think about it as writers, if we're doing it right, our unique voice will come through. And so even if we're both making a chicken masala, right, uh, or we're both writing about, let's say, Tolkien and Lewis and the Inklings, our unique perspective is going to add something to the ongoing conversation about that particular topic. So I think that we need to be a little less protective and maybe even a little bit more generous in sharing, uh, swapping recipes, comparing notes, and, and really helping and encouraging one another. I have to chuckle that you used a cooking metaphor because I can assure <laughs> you that anything I would cook would be very different from anyone else and probably nobody I know would eat it. So, but yes, and I think that that does apply. You can't write someone else's book, right? You can't. It's because you have your own perspective. Right. Tell us more about the Inklings and how that that situation worked for these really amazing authors. Oh, that's uh, that's great. It's one of my favorite subjects, one of my favorite subjects to talk about, to write about, and to speak about. So C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were both teachers at Oxford University, and they became uh, friends as a result of working closely together and being part of a, a number of book discussion groups. And as they got to know one another better, they began to share their manuscripts, their works in progress with one another. It started out as just the two of them meeting regularly for lunch or for coffee. And it, when people ask me about being part of a writing group or getting into a collaborative situation, I tell them the first step is really easy. Just make a coffee date. or, And if that goes well, expand on that and make a regular date to meet and simply to talk about the things that you're working on. Simply the process of explaining things to another person can make a, a project come alive and can make the whole process feel a lot less intimidating. Anyway, so Lewis and Tolkien are meeting regularly for lunch. And during one of those lunch meetings, Tolkien pulls out a whole big, long poem that he's been working on and shares it with his friend. From that point on, Lewis and Tolkien exchanged poetry and stories and essays and other things that they were writing. And this group, this, this meeting of these two was so successful, they started to invite other writers to join their circle. You know, we talk about the Inklings because they became really a pretty big deal. They became a big deal for the kind of writing that Lewis and Tolkien did. But over time, it involved... 19 men meeting over a period of about 17 years, once or twice a week, and almost, uh, well, a little over 300 works emerged from that collaborative circle. That is amazing, those statistics. And I do believe that collaboration is, is the context 
for real creativity, which is why we we have set up our company this way. We really want to have people be in a safe environment where, where they can explore and get feedback. I think we have so many advantages now that the Inklings did not have. We have advantages to use technology. We can post a Google Doc and get feedback. We can call one another easily for a fact checked or to test out a paragraph or a phrase and see if it works or not. We can interview various experts to enrich the kinds of things that we're writing. Or we can just surround ourselves with good folks like the folks at your uh, press who can help us step-by-step throughout the entire process and can help us over those dry spells, those self-doubts, and those other difficulties that there are, not only in the writing process, but also in the mysterious world of publishing and publicity and all of those kinds of things. That particular realm it changes, doesn't it? Year by year by year. Yeah, it does. And it's so good to have a group of folks who make that their job to stay up to date on what's happening in the publishing world. Before we go on and talk about that particular group, another clarification might be helpful when we're thinking about collaboration. A lot of times when people think about collaboration, they think about co-writing. So let's say you and I are having coffee over at Classic Coffee, and we come up with a great idea for the next great bestseller. We initiate the idea together. We say, I'm going to write the even chapters. You're going to write the odd chapters. We write. We edit each other's stuff. We revise it together. That's what most people think of when they think of collaboration. They think about co-writing right. from, the, right. from the spark of the idea through the actual sharing of the writing process to the very, very end, and then both of our names go on the book. When I talk about collaboration, I talk about all of the ways that we can help one another. And a lot of times what that means is I'm working on a project and I get horribly, horribly stuck. And I call my friend David and I say, David, I'm horribly stuck because I'm trying to explain this thing about this thing and I can't figure out how to do it. And he starts asking me questions. Well, have you tried this? What about that? You know, so-and-so wrote about it this way. Have, have you considered this other? And through that one-hour conversation, David and I collaborate through my block, and I get a spark of a direction that I can be propelled forward. We have, in fact, collaborated. And over the course of a project, particularly a long-term project, I would hope to have dozens of collaborators some of them are going to help me solve problems in the text. But to be honest, most of them are going to try to help me solve problems with me. So I'm betting, Carmen, that from time to time in the projects that you've worked on, you've been discouraged. You have three days in a row, four days in a row, maybe a week or two, where nothing is happening on the page. And it doesn't matter how hard you're trying, you're pushing, you're pulling, you're pulling your hair out. And nothing's happening. And what you need at a point like that is not advice. What you need at a point like that is somebody who is either an encourager or what I call a resonator. So an encourager is somebody who's going to be focused on you. And they're going to say, what do you need? Do you need, <laughs> maybe you need a cup of coffee. Maybe you need a walk. Maybe you need to get outside. Maybe you need a two-hour shopping excursion. You know, maybe you need a nap. Like that. Um <laughs> 
um, <laughs> they're helping to take care of you and encourage you on your way. But even better than that is if you can find someone in your world who serves as a resonator. Now, the idea of resonating is, um, well, it's the idea of two things that vibrate at the same frequency, right? So uh, a musical uh, term is sometimes uh, implied there. Somebody who resonates is somebody who fundamentally understands what it is you're trying to do and then commits to traveling with you through that process to help you get there. And we need people like that in our lives. And just for writers, I just want want them to imagine all of those times when they had an idea or were working on a project and they felt like there isn't anybody in the whole wide world who's going to care about this thing. And then a resonator comes along and helps to clarify, this is what you're doing. This is what your book is really about. Uh, this is why it matters. And it's that person, that resonator, that I think is one of our most important collaborators on the things that we're attempting, especially when we're attempting something that's a big, big dream. You know, that brings me to uh, ask you about what kind of people do you want to have in your, in your life? Um, and you're saying an encourager or a resonator, not a critic, not uh, somebody that's going to tell you why it's not going to work um, or, or somebody is going to boss you around. And I think we have to be very careful, don't we? We have to be very careful who we invite into this process because we're collaborating. We're not competing. We're not having a, an arm wrestle match. I, I love that. I love that perspective. And I think that one of the secrets uh, is understanding what it is that we need at any given time. So there are times when I'm at a stage with a project. I'm, I'm working on a book on Dante right now. And I read it and I look at it and I say, something is off. This isn't working. Uh, I, I, I think it's good, but I don't like it. And I can't figure out why. At a time like that, I do not need an encourager. And I do not need a resonator. I need somebody who's going to give me the cold, hard truth. But I think what makes collaboration work best is when we as writers understand what is it that I need right now. And we need a kind of vocabulary to ask for what we need. So when I give that manuscript to somebody that I know, somebody that I know is a little fussy, somebody that I know has more expertise than I do, perhaps, I need to know how to ask the right question. So the right question on one day might be, is there anything in here worth saving? Mm. Is there anything yeah. in here that's worth pursuing? But on some days, I need to ask the question, tell me in no uncertain terms, what's wrong? What do I need to do to fix this? And there, there are a whole host of activities particularly ones that the Inklings were good at. Lewis and Tolkien were particularly good at a full range of feedback and questions. We think about a writing group like the Inklings as focusing just on critique, pointing out the weaknesses, pointing out the problems, uh, encouraging one another to get better. Iron sharpening iron is the phrase that's sometimes used. And sure enough, they did that, but that wasn't all. So thinking about how do I ask for what I need on this project, in this season, 
is really part of the secret, I think, to being a good collaborator. I also think that uh, the person asking for the assistance needs to be open and not necessarily easily tweaked. You know, <laughs> it's uh, and it's hard. It's hard because I think especially uh, new authors who haven't been through this process, they really want somebody to tell them it's the most fabulous thing they've ever written. Um I, I I know I was that way at the beginning, and then I got that beat out of me <laughs> with all the editing that <laughs> I went through. Um, but so there's a balance in there of being open, um, and then and knowing what you really need. I think that's an excellent point. How do you go about knowing what you need if you're a relatively new author? Uh, how what kind of questions would you ask yourself to find that out? Oh, I love that. Uh, I I don't have a ready answer for that. I think a lot of times as writers, we're more aware that something's not working than understanding why it's not working. And that language alone can be very helpful. So when I'm trying to get feedback, especially in the early stages, especially when I'm a little uncertain, that's the question that I ask. And when I'm overseeing writing groups in my classroom, that's the question that I encourage them to ask one another tell me what's working, tell me what's not working. And that's very helpful because that's a diagnostic question. Can you help to diagnose what's working, what's, what are the best parts, what's really hitting home, and what's just missing the mark? That helps me to set some parameters. The second question is a follow-up to the first, and that's what might I try to move out of my situation. So I think about the difference again between a descriptive or diagnostic observation and a prescriptive one. We're very tempted, I think, when we're commenting on one another's writing to give prescriptions. We say, your, your introduction is terrible, fix it, right? Well, that's instruction, but that's not very helpful, right? So think about that in terms of diagnosis and prescription. Your introduction right now is kind of boring. Try perhaps starting with a startling quotation or a scene from a story in order to grab the reader's interest and get involved. And so when the prescription has more than one possibility, mm -hmm. when it's practical and when it's in the form of try this, don't do this, then I think that it's a little easier for uh, our, <laughs> our tender egos to consider it. Think about how helpful it is just to get traction out of the situation by having some practical suggestions. A lot of times when I'm working with writers, they'll say, yeah, people tell me what's wrong and I know it's wrong. What I really want to know is what could I possibly do to fix it? How should I address it? And again, two or three suggestions are better than one. You know, when I'm reading a manuscript and I feel like it doesn't work, and I'm not sure why, it seems like in general it turns out to be an issue about structure, that that somehow the book itself is um, put together in a way that it doesn't quite fit. And it might fit in the author's mind, but it doesn't fit when you have new eyes on it. Would you say that that's something that's true for your experience, that structure tends to be one of the problems when you feel like it's just not working? 
Yeah, I think structure is huge. And I think it's one of those things that we tend not to pay enough attention to. Because when we think about revising something or improving something, we usually think about how can I use fewer adjectives or how can I use more active verbs or how could I use a more lively illustration? And I think the secret to good revision is to really re-see, revise, right? Re-see, to see again the larger picture. And it's those larger issues that we tend not to ask ourselves. Uh, how do the different parts work together? Is the sequence the best it can be? I work with my students a lot about talking about the question of proportion. Are things taking the amount of space they need to to emphasize that this is really important. And this is just a tiny detail and we can kind of hit it lightly and then move on. So thinking about sequence, what's the best order of things, but also thinking about proportion. Am I giving adequate attention to the most important ideas in my story? Uh, I think that those two things really help in terms of the structure issue, but fundamentally, we get in trouble with structure like we get in trouble with a lot of things as authors because we know what we mean, but the reader only sees what we say. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've sat across a desk from a student and the student is adamant. They're stomping their little foot and they're saying, I know what I meant. Yeah, and I right. have to, sh right? I have to shrug and it's say, not on the page. I'm really glad. Yeah, I don't see that. So I can't track with you. You have to make that explicit so that I can journey with you through the events of this story or through the facts of this explanatory text. And, and to be able to say, this is a journey and you keep on losing me. You keep on jumping ahead and I can't follow you because you haven't given me what I need in terms of the scaffolding to be able to get there. Well, I think our listeners uh, understand after listening to you for just a few minutes that you are a wealth of information. And your website is amazing because you have all kinds of resources available to writers. Would you tell us how they can get to your website and access that information? Sure. I'd love to have people visit me at dianaglier.com. And uh, there are some resources there for writers, for writing groups, and there's a lot of information about the Inklings, about C.S. Lewis, about his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien, and how their creative process worked and what we can learn from their example. I'd also encourage people to go on YouTube. I have a lot of lectures and videos. I have my own YouTube channel, but there are other videos here and there where people might be able to learn more, and that may be a useful resource as well. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. You're amazing. I just have to say, <laughs> I learn something new every time we talk. So thank you for being on our podcast. It's always fun to talk with you, Carmen. Take care. If you like our program, send us a comment and visit us online at barrypowellpress.com.